Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast and welcome to the Texans, Jags, Strawberries and Cream postgame show. My co-host Stephen Kerr is on vacation and stepping in is my good friend Ben DuBose, who despite the game in England is all about the USA today. You see what I did there, Ben? Oh, there you go. I like that. I I didn't even notice where you were going with that pun at first. (laughs) So you are working for USA Today right now on the the Rockets. That's your new gig, right? Right. Yeah. Doing that uh, pretty much pretty much seven days a week. It's uh, getting busy in NBA season. And quite frankly, after the way the Astros season ended in the World Series, I'm happy to uh, have other sports to kind of throw myself into. Certainly the Rockets since I cover them. But uh the Texans as well, especially on a good day like today in which they just went out and dominated. Quick hot take, and I know how you love your hot takes. Uh, Deshaun Watson is good. He's good. Yeah, very. Just a really impressive performance by Deshaun, and he's like David Blaine now. You throw him in handcuffs. You throw him down into a pool of water. You cover him up in a net, uh, and then somehow he figures out a way to get out. I mean, the the play to Carlos Hyde, the little flip play where he – uh, looks like he's sacked, and then you had the play later in the game where he's about to go down, and from about one leg and you know weird angle, he throws a pass, gets it about fifteen twenty yards down the field for a big play. I mean, he was just incredible, and and it's just not the one game, Ben. This is like several games in a row. For, I mean, this is what's exciting about what's going on with the Texans, despite the injuries, despite losing JJ Watt and everything, is Deshaun Watson is putting together one game after another, and starting to be more consistent about it. Uh, the only thing that stops him these days is offensive penalties. It seems like the, the Texans, uh, with, with Deshaun Watson on a roll, that's that's a recipe for good things in the AFC. Yeah, I think at this point he's clearly a top 10 player in the NFL, and he might be a top five player. But what makes this one so fulfilling is you know how much help that he had. I thought it was one of Bill O'Brien's best games as a play caller, especially in the first half. You know, as the game moved along, I think some of the uh, the things that Deshaun was doing, moving the pocket, I think Jacksonville eventually wore down some time of possession in the first half was big to kind of wearing down that front. But it wasn't just Deshaun, you know, as good as he was. And of course, the play to Carlos Hyde, the way he keeps plays alive, he can push it down the field. He had one that slant he threw in the second half to uh, DeAndre Hopkins down the seam was just unbelievable. Just a tiny window. Because, of course, A.J. uh, Boye can really cover. And, you know, lots of typical things from Deshaun. But what I really liked in this game, you know, the play calling from Bill O'Brien, that first half, you know, we saw them kind of scheme the aggressive Jacksonville defensive line out with some of the misdirections and the way horizontally they moved side to side. I thought this was one of Bill's more cohesive games as a play caller. I thought the return of Titus Howard did a ton as far as the run blocking. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, Laramie Tunsil didn't play. And, of course, he's really good. But I think, you know, you can make an argument over the last few weeks that Titus Howard is as important as anyone to their run blocking. Because even with Tunsil, you know, you look at the season to date, the first eight games before today. Now, of course, the Texans six and three. But you can almost split it in terms of how effective the run game was. It was a lot more the first month of the year that they were able to establish the run. And that had a lot to do with the presence of Titus Howard. And then when he went down, that's when you really saw a decline. And so, you know, certainly Watson playing well plays into that. You know, you have to respect his movement, his passing. And so that opens up more. But of course, Deshaun was there over the past month and the run game has not always been there to that extent. So I just really liked it was such a team effort. And of course, they're still not even fully whole. You know, you didn't have Tunsil, you didn't have uh, Will Fuller. But I think, you know, you combine Watson with what he does every week with good play calling. I loved early in the game, by the way, that uh, Bill O'Brien went for that fourth and two in that first drive. They picked it up. They ended up getting a field goal. So I thought they were aggressive. I thought, you know, the play calling, it really challenged Jacksonville, a team that, by the way, is not that easy to run on. Their defensive front is pretty stout. Titus Howard coming back. I just thought offensively it was a really uh, complete performance, one of the better ones that we've seen. It was interesting because Titus Howard back at right tackle, but Tunsil's out. And I was thinking about this, Ben. You've got Matt Khalil and Chantrell Henderson and Roderick Johnson. All these guys were your tackles, your potential left tackles. You drafted a tackle in the first and second round. 
And then starting at left tackle for the Texans in this game, although he rotated with Roderick Johnson, but starting at left tackle after all of that is Chris Clark, who he's like, he's perfect for Halloween week because you, you can't kill Chris Clark. No, somehow he always finds his way back. And, you know, all in all, I thought he was decent. He was serviceable. I mean, it's nothing, you know, I don't think pro football focus is going to grade him as off the charts or anything, but I thought he did his job. And, you know, the one penalty that he had, I thought was terrible. That blindside block, I know it's the rule, but come on, that's pure instinct when you had the defender going after the quarterback and you're an offensive lineman and you can block him. I mean, that's just one of those, you know, you know, I just roll my eyes. I know it's the rule, but it's hard for me to be upset with the offensive lineman for doing what's just pure instinct. You see a defender, you know, a huge guy running at your quarterback. You're going to want to try to block that guy. That's just the reality. And that's the only angle that he had. So I have a tough time blaming him for that. And outside of that one penalty, I mean, I thought it was a serviceable performance and maybe it helps, you know, the rest of the line, certainly Deshaun's mobility helps, but I was surprised, you know, I retweeted, I think it was a uh, battle red blog talking about uh, Clark starting and basically saying, pray for Deshaun, then pray for Deshaun again. I retweeted that before the game because I thought it was funny, but all in all, I mean, even with uh, Chris Clark instead of Laramie Tunsil, it, it was effective. I don't know if it's going to go down as one of the better offensive line performances ever or anything crazy like that, but it was serviceable and, you know, serviceable against the Jaguars when you have uh, Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, playmakers like that, that's probably going to be enough. Yeah, I want to bookmark that Chris Clark blindside block because I agree with you on that and just talking about some stuff that's bigger picture from the officiating standpoint. But the penalties did cost the Texans in the first half because uh, and, and w- not just the penalties, the injuries uh, as well yeah. cost the Texans in the first half because, uh, yeah, Chris Clark – the blindside block didn't bother me, but, you know, it was a killer on the right. two-minute drive where he has the holding penalty, and you're forced into a 58-yard field goal that uh, Fairbairn was short on. But you also had Dan Skipper missing a block on an extra point, which cost you an extra point. Dan Skipper should not be one of your tackles if you're the Texans, no matter what the situation is. So that, that was a killer. And then Stephen Mitchell and, and Chris Clark with penalties in that first drive that were a killer, and Stephen Mitchell who would not be in the game except there was wide receiver injuries. Of course, we know about Will Fuller not playing, but also uh, a little bit of uh, Kenny Stills being in and out uh, early in the game with some injuries. But uh, that that's eight points right there. Ben, when you, when you look at it, this could have been easier, a bigger blowout. And it's just the Texans have just got to clean up these penalties. I mean, we saw Zach Fulton with a false start and a holding on the first drive in the third quarter that, that, that slows you down. Um, there's a Darren Fells false start. I mean, it, it, there's, it yeah. seems like there's always something uh, pre-snap penalty or offensive line related, whether it's tight end or offensive line with the Texans in the last few weeks and, or just drive killers. Yeah, and it's especially a big deal now with uh, Fuller out. And of course, we know Kuti has fallen completely out of favor with Bill O'Brien. But it's one of those situations when you don't have Fuller to take the top off of defense and you know, we'll see what his status is now. You know, you've got the buy, so you've got a couple of weeks off. Maybe he has a good recovery, and you know, you've got this hell stretch coming off of the Ravens, the Colts, the Patriots that might define your season. But it, you know, when you're short-handed, and we've talked in the past about how important uh, Will Fuller's explosion is, then yeah, I mean, turning even if it's just a little false start, turning you, you know a second and eight into a second and thirteen is massive because you don't have as easy of a time getting those big chunks. And it's not just a matter of throwing it to Fuller. Again, it's the fact that, you know, if you have to account for Fuller over the top, then that safety isn't going to be able to close as well on, you know, a tight end or DeAndre Hopkins over the seam, that type of thing. So I would say in that context, it's an especially big deal. You've got to cut the penalties down when you don't have Fuller because the Texans aren't really a big chunk play offense at this point. You know, they had a few of them and Deshaun's really good. But I think, you know, the first half, they just kind of grinded away with the clock. I think the touchdown drive was 14 plays, 80 yards. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to clean up the, you know, the self-inflicted stuff because they just aren't good enough, especially without Will Fuller and without Laramie Tunsil, to realistically just get big chunk plays down the field over and over again. You've got to control what you can control. I thought offensively, yeah, that would be the net pick. And then, you know, O'Brien had a great game, but I will – 
throw a little bit of criticism his way. I thought attempting the 59-yard field goal at the end of the first half on fourth and three, I didn't like that. I mean, to me, there's 15 seconds left. It's fourth and three from the 40. Just go for it. Try to get, you know, a quick out and pick up the first down. And, you know, by that point, move your field goal up by about five or 10 yards. And if you don't pick it up, well, you're giving the ball to Jacksonville at pretty much the same spot as if you missed the field goal. So to me, that was just a little game management thing. You know, there's no way you can convince me that making a 59-yard field goal is more likely than picking up a fourth and three, even if you have to get out of bounds. So I think, you know, that's one little thing in the first half that I would nitpick at. Certainly, you know, you're right about the penalties, but, you know, it feels good to be nitpicking, to have to uh, point out these flaws, because by and large, it, it was a very good day. I kind of joked on Twitter at the end of the half, there was one play, six seconds to go, or potentially more than one play. And it looked like both coaching staffs fell asleep on the job there. And it's kind of classic Doug Marone, Bill O'Brien stuff, because, you know, it's not just this isn't a Bill O'Brien thing. This was a Romeo Cornell thing, because, you know, as the announcers pointed out, the Texans are playing the edge. The Texans are playing to keep them in bounds. But the Jags have a timeout there. They throw a quick pass over the middle. The guy gets down, gives himself up, and, and calls a quick timeout. And yeah. you're at you're field goal that's range. The, that, that's the identical scenario from the end of the New Orleans game that beat them when they had the ball at midfield. And, you know, Breeze recognized that. And six seconds left, identical timing on the clock. And, yeah, they threw that little, uh, you know, basically what amounted to a 10-yard pass. They called a timeout with two seconds left on the 40. And then, of course, the Saints kicker made that you know, 57, 58 yarder, however long it was to win the game. And so, yeah, combination of Doug Marone, Gardner Minshew being a rookie, they thankfully they didn't pick up on it. And so, you know, I would say, yeah, Bill O'Brien's lack of awareness in terms of the 59 yard field goal over going for the fourth and three. Well, then the Texans got the break back because the Jaguars did not recognize that, you know, the way the Texans were defending them. Yeah, there's a pretty easy way that you can pick up 10 to 15 yards. You can definitely do it. Uh, within six seconds, go down. Yes, you can give yourself up. You know, at the end of that Saints game, the most common, you know, response I got on Twitter about it was, oh, you know, why did the Texans uh, touch him? Wouldn't time have run out? No, if you give yourself up, you can call timeout right then and there. And that's what the Jaguars could have done. So uh, thankfully, Doug Marone was not able to make Bill O'Brien uh, pay for that lapse in judgment. But with that said, you know, I want to make clear we're nitpicking at this point. I thought in terms of the overall feel for the game, the play calling, this was one of Bill's better ones in Houston. That's just one of those situations that, you know, you hope that they learn from because, of course, your margin of error when you start playing teams like the Ravens, the Colts, the Patriots in the weeks ahead is going to be a lot smaller than it was against uh, Gardner Minshew today, who finally showed uh, a little bit of those rookie tendencies. I still would like to see Romeo after 4 million years in the NFL coach up his secondary a little bit better in these late game situations. I mean, this is not the first time, Ben, that we've seen some weird stuff. The guy's playing way off the ball when, you know, they're, they shouldn't be playing way off the ball, 15 yards off the ball when you, you, gotta, you need a 10-yard pass and a first, just stuff like that. Sure. Although, I will say the, the play from Conley at the goal line. Now, I did think he was playing a little too soft on that fourth down. But, Robert, thank God the Texans finally have, it feels like, a corner with ball skills. How many times over the years have we talked about, you know, corners and safeties on this team not being able to find the ball? That was such, I know this is just one play, but I thought of it when you were talking about playing off. And even though they were playing too far off, in my opinion, on that fourth and long, it's amazing what you can overcome if your secondary guys are able to find the ball because even though, you know, the Jacksonville receiver did get some separation and the ball did get there, they were ultimately able to knock it out because even though the ball, you know, Minshew hit him in the hands, well, you get your hand in there. And then as they were going to the ball or going to the ground, excuse me, uh, Conley knocked the ball out. So it's just one little play, but it made me feel so good because how many times over the years, Robert, have we talked about, you know, corners and or safeties on the Texans not having, the requisite ball skills compared to a lot of other guys around the league. It's something that's bothered me a lot. And at least for one day, I'm pleased that uh, a guy in the Texans really made a, a great play in that regard. Also, uh, Jonathan Joseph had a big play at the goal line in the fourth quarter as well. So, you know, for all of Romeo's problems, and I don't know how much is just instinct versus coaching, but I do think the ball skills were a lot better today. And that was a pretty big step in the right direction. Yeah, it's a little early for me on the Gary and Conley thing, but if the Gary and Conley thing starts looking good over the next few weeks, 
and there's not a ton of tests. I mean, Tom Brady, I mean, Lamar Jackson's a good quarterback, but he he's not Tom Brady, but Tom Brady's really the only real quarterback they got moving forward. And as much as you go, oh, we're going to miss J.J. Watt in the pass rush, there's going to be a lot of offenses that look like this in the next few games. I mean, Jacoby Brissett, we know what T.Y. Hilton might do to you with the, you know, the, with giving a lot of time and maybe the Colts are, are sort of dangerous. But if you look at their opponents over the next few weeks, the Broncos, the Tampa and Jameis Winston, and just there, there, there's a roadmap for them to be able to get through a lot of this mess without J.J. Watt. It's just when you get to the playoffs and you, you, you focus more on the elite quarterbacks, that's when I think no J.J. Because, I mean, the pass rush yeah. was non-existent. I mean, they got a couple of sacks, but they were pretty much, you know, uh, coverage sacks. True. Yeah, and I thought the coverage was pretty good in those situations. They also, I think it was towards the end of the first half, uh, they sent a blitz up the middle one time because obviously the line wasn't going to be able to do it themselves. Uh, the one thing I would say, so yeah, I, I mean, against the Tom Brady's of the world, uh, Pat Mahomes, if they see him again, you know, not having Watt is going to be a problem. I will say, however, you know, I thought some of their better performance today against the run might have happened because Watt wasn't there. And again, he, you know, the positives far outweigh the bad. I'm not going to make it seem like, because that'd be a terrible take that losing JJ Watt is a good thing. No, it's not. But there are certain elements of the game. Uh, Pat Starr pointed it out, Pat D. Stat on uh, Twitter, and I thought it was a good observation that, you know, the, the defensive line was a lot more disciplined without Watt because what JJ does sometimes, and it leaves them vulnerable in the run game, you know, he's so aggressive going for that big play, going for that pressure that, you know, we have seen, and it's especially happened, you know, after the back surgeries later in his career, perhaps at this point, he doesn't have quite the explosion he had early in his career. So he has to kind of sell out, sell out a little bit more to get that level of pressure. But at times you're able to really get some big chunk plays on the ground by running basically at him because he's putting his ears back and he's not able to, you know, defend his zone when there's a runner going in his direction. So certainly not going to say it's a good thing overall. It's not, it's going to catch up with them at some point against, elite passing offenses, but, you know, especially against a team, you know, Gardner Minshew, again, finally looked like a rookie at times in this game. I think the discipline that they played with, they didn't have the pass rush. And I, I will say that's a little bit ominous moving forward. They're going to have to figure some things out against, you know, certainly by Tom Brady. We'll see about Lamar Jackson and Jacoby Brissett. But I think, you know, if there's one positive you can get, I thought the defensive line was a lot more disciplined. And I think, you know, those guys kind of stayed in their lanes as opposed to at times you, you do see JJ overcommit. But again, that's just a small situational thing. By and large, they're definitely going to miss him as a pass rusher once they go up against better quarterbacks than Gardner Minshew. You think we could see some more from Charles Amenahu because he looked really good early in the season? Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Yep. And then, you know, he's kind of disappeared. Maybe hit the rookie wall a little bit a few games in the season. I don't know. Yeah, that's the hope. That's the one guy who, you know, you have to think back to September to see it, but actually has gotten some, you know, one-on-one penetration in pass rushing situations. You know, you think late in that uh, Charger game in particular was when he was wrecking shop. And of course, who knows, maybe to some degree he was benefiting from the attention that uh, that JJ draws. Uh, so, you know, it's an open question as far as whether he can, you know, you're probably right about the rookie wall component of it. And then, you know, even if he's able to get past that, you know, he hasn't had quite the same usage of late, you know, will he be able to do it without JJ? I don't know, but I agree. He's the one guy, you know, internally that you can point to and say, Hey, maybe this is someone who can step into a bigger role and put some pressure on the quarterback because yeah, by and large, it definitely will be a need at some point, even if because of Gardner Minshew, it wasn't a huge one today. I wanted to say just heaping praise on Carlos Hyde after this game. You know, 19 carries, 160 yards, 8.4 yards a carry. Everything was golden until Except. about one yard away. And it looked like, Ben, did you see this? It looked like he slowed down inside the five. And, of course, he had the ball in the wrong hand, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's 19 to 3, so the game is over. But I'm sure, you know, he's going to get ripped in the film room for that. Yeah, it looked like he slowed down and he's got to have that ball on the other side. I mean, it was the, you know, it was the reverse of the play that Justin Reed made on the goal line um, in the Cleveland game last year. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to be more aware than that. You know, we talked earlier about 
you know, defensively, the ball awareness of the Texans, the ball skill, where there's a certain component of that uh, on offense as well when you're going into the end zone. And, you know, it's a play where it didn't cost them the game. And I've said it with, you know, the Rockets, because I still do occasional podcasts and certainly, you know, my writing over at USA Today, like, you know, they've had a terrible defense to start the year, but generally, it's easier to work on your issues when you win than if you lose. You, you know, the, the Rockets last year, yeah, they also had a bad defense to start the year, and they started uh, one and five, and that led to, you know, Carmelo Anthony getting cut. You had all these other issues. And, you know, that's how I'm kind of looking at this for the Rockets this year. You know, they're three and two. The defense is not as bad, and uh, or the defense is as bad, but it's not costing them as much in the standings. And so it's much easier to work on your things if you win. And so I'm hoping that same principle applies to uh, Carlos Hyde going into the end zone because thankfully it didn't cost him the game. It didn't have consequences. And so hopefully it's a way in which, you know, he gets a pretty big lesson out of it. I'm sure the Texans will mention it in the film room quite a few times, and hopefully they can learn from it without something like that uh, costing them a game. Yeah. You look at the uh, carries just for the, for the Texans and they averaged 6.4 yards per carry in this game on 34 carries, which is, which is great. And it's also great because the key has been, they basically shortened this game a ton. There were four, yep. basically four uh, possessions in the entire first half, and there wouldn't have been that many in the second half, except Jacksonville kept turning the ball over to the Texans late in the game. Right. Yeah, and I think that's part of you know the situation that that needs to be their formula now that it, you know, especially you don't have JJ Watt, and the secondary still has their share of injuries. I mean, you're. You don't need to give, especially as you go up against the stretch in which, you know, Lamar Jackson, Tom Brady, you know, Jacoby Brissett at times has had his moments. It's going to be trouble if you give extended opportunities with a defense that's got, you know, their share of injuries. And now there's no J.J. Watt. I mean, you've got to be able to shorten the game. And so, yeah, to me, that was the most important thing. You know, people talk about the defensive performance. Honestly, the offense deserves a big assist because like in that first half, and, you know, really for the entire game, of course, they gave up just 30 points, which is great. But, you know, yeah, there were just four possessions. Like I looked down or looked at the clock and it was 930, just basically an hour into the game. And we were already at the two minute warning. And so the offense, when you're able to grind out like that, even if you don't put up major points at the time, being able to, you know, basically bleed the clock, limit the possessions and also hopefully you know, in terms of replacing J.J. Watt, maybe that's the key. If you limit the possessions, then it gives those defensive linemen more opportunities to kind of leave it all on the field, so to speak, go all out, try and do whatever it takes to generate some pressure because we know over the balance of a normal game, they're probably just not talented enough, at least in the pass rush. But if you limit the possessions and maybe get some turnover luck, as they did in the fourth quarter in this, but also another part of limiting the possessions is that it makes the guys that are out there more able to truly cut it loose without having to worry about, you know, conserving themselves for, you know, 70 plays or something crazy in terms of the overall uh, plays, time of possession, whatever metric you want to go by. So, yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for the offense and the way they dominated the line of scrimmage, the run game. It, it had a lot to do with their defensive performance as well. One guy I was so excited about, Ben, uh, a couple of years ago, was Dylan Cole, and he was looking so good his rookie year, undrafted. He he was, you know, doing incredible stuff in coverage. He looked like he could rush the passer. You know, he was athletic, just incredibly skilled, the whole package. And it never felt like he got his footing back after he had that injury that knocked him out the first season. But for the first time, I felt like Dylan Cole's back to being a factor after this game. This was more of Dylan Cole that I'd have seen since the first year. Yeah, I mean, he had a couple of, I wouldn't say it was a great game. The uh, the big play, I forget if it was late in the first half or early in the second, where he lost assignment on that little dump off that went for 38. And then there was one in the second half where he really should have stopped Minshew short of the uh, the down marker and Minshew got to the 35-yard line early. And it, yeah. Uh, so there were a couple of little things he could have done better. But yeah, I mean, what I think, was the story of this game defensively besides, you know, the offense limiting the possessions, time of possession, those types of factors, the coverage was really strong. I mean, you know, we talk about the lack of pass rush and the couple of times they actually got sacks being largely coverage sacks. I mean, 
we have become accustomed this year to seeing guys run just wide open against the Texans or, you know, the Raiders game last week. You had a couple of just absolute busts that led to touchdowns. There was very little of that today. You know, I think as the game moved along, the story was, you know, Minshew as a rookie, he forced things once they were down 19 to three in the fourth. But the first three quarters, you know, when I saw the wide view on what replays that they were able to show us, it looked like that. I mean, the coverage was pretty sound, certainly the secondary, but the linebackers as well. You know, Dylan Cole was a big factor in terms of picking up the uh, the backs because Fournette's become a better uh, receiving threat this year. I thought some of their screens, uh, McKinney did a great job of basically sniffing those out at the snap and not letting them go anywhere. So I think, you know, certainly the secondary, they deserve their due. Um, we talked about Conley. We talked about Jonathan Joseph. But, yeah, the linebackers as well, uh, Cole and McKinney, I thought this was a really good game for them in terms of their, you know, their intelligence, their recognition. They were able to kind of diagnose what was happening. And maybe some of that has to do with Minshew being a rookie and he's giving off some tells, so to speak. I'm still in Astros mode and wondering about, you know, tipping pitches and all that kind of stuff. Maybe there's a little bit of that going on with uh, Minshew in terms of his cadence or what was going on in the pocket. But whatever the reason. The bottom line is that even without a pass rush, Jacksonville did not have really that big of a passing game. And that had a lot to do with uh, certainly the secondary, but also the linebackers as well. It really didn't look like to me that there were that many Jaguars uh, running wide open. It wasn't like Minshew was missing guys that were open. No, there just weren't that many guys open, period. Yeah. And then part of it, I think, was, you know, sort of, I mean, not just late in the game, but, well, yeah, pretty much late in the game. It turned it from the... Minshew magic to a, a mustache meltdown and it, it it is good to be in the AFC South at times because look I mean facing the Jags twice a year you, you never feel like you're you're really going to get dominated by this Jacksonville Jaguars no, no not at all <laughs> um, it, you know they're the type of team that they're just trying to keep it close and get that kind of Minshew magic so to speak and you know, I'm reading the postgame comments now from O'Brien, and I think that they had a good game plan defensively, which was keep him in the pocket, avoid the broken plays, because where Jacksonville, you know, they did beat Denver this way, and they almost beat the Texans this way back in September. You know, they hang around, hang around, and then, you know, in the fourth quarter, especially when defenders start to tire a little bit, that's when you're able to get Minshew kind of out of the pocket. And he's you know, great on his feet in terms of how he's available to, to process and how he can you know, keep plays alive and still see what's going on downfield. And in this game, I mean, the, the Texans just did not give them the opportunity to hang around. I think that's the biggest thing is that, yeah, the Jaguars, they've never been, you know, even though they were four and four, I know they almost beat the Texans in Houston in September, but no, this is not a great team. They're a team that just tries to hang around and then get some, you know, basically Minshew magic at the end of a close game. And uh, fortunately, the Texans, they took care of business. And by the time it was in the fourth quarter, uh, the game was pretty much in the books. DeAndre Hopkins, I thought he was going to have a better game in this one because there was no Jalen Ramsey. But, you know, eight catches, 48 yards. But the deal with DeAndre Hopkins this year, Ben, isn't like he's catching a ton of touchdowns, although he gets a TD in this game. It isn't like he's picking up a ton of yards. But he racks up a ton of catches, and they all seem to be at big moments and at big times. Yeah, they extend drives. That's to me. And I don't know. Maybe they're defending him differently this year. I don't know if maybe he's a step less explosive than in the past or if there's a minor injury. I don't know. You know, certainly when Fuller is healthy, he's going to be, because of his speed, the more over-the-top guy. But even though we haven't really seen those huge chunk plays to DeAndre Hopkins this year, I mean, it just feels like, and you go back a couple of weeks ago and, you know, I think it was a game in Kansas City. He had like 55 yards, but I believe it was Sean Pendergast saying it was the best 55-yard game he had ever seen because every single one of them was huge from the standpoint of keeping drives alive. And that's what it felt like today. You know, the box score isn't going to wow you, but just so many of those, you know, be it on third down, be it uh, a key spot in the field, such as that you were talked about that slant that they hit down the seam that set the Texans up at the one before that Duke Johnson just truck stick touchdown. It just feels like that, you know, even though the yards aren't going to wow you. Yeah, I, I agree that the timing, they're just at really important spots in the field or third down, keeping drives alive. It's the timing of what Hopkins does that seems really, really valuable. 
Ben, why was the Texans' first ever draft pick, Tony Baselli, firing up the English <laughs> crowd to beat his old team? No loyalty after all the games that he didn't play for us? <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I got a kick out of that. You know, I uh, to start the game, I said former Texans great Tony Baselli, you know, in the same vein of every time the Astros play the Rangers, I point out uh, former Astros great uh, Pudge Rodriguez. But, you, you know, at least Pudge Rodriguez played games with the Astros at the end of his career. You know, the Texans never even got that with Baselli, but. Hey, I mean, that's that's their thing. And, you know, it's good for the NFL that, you know, for all of Jacksonville's flaws and we talk about, you know, it's not a huge fan base. There are issues with selling tickets, stuff like that. I mean, if you didn't have Jacksonville, you couldn't have these games in London, which, you know, I think games in London are a lot of fun. You know, I enjoy especially when your team goes out and wins, as the Texans did today early on a Sunday morning. It sets you up for a, a pretty good day overall of watching football fairly distrust but you know if not for the jaguars and their you know let's say lack of pedigree it'd be pretty tough to have these games in london because you know you're taking away a home game from somebody and you know the texans would not be very keen on giving up you know one of only eight sources of revenue in terms of what they get every year so you need teams like uh the jaguars the raiders that you can easily uh take a game from without it being a huge hit to the bottom line and you know, like I said, I, I enjoy the vibe. It's probably good for the league. I enjoy selfishly as a football fan being able to watch four consecutive games. Now that you have the three regular slots plus one in the morning and you would not be able to do that stuff without having uh, a team that you could easily take a home game from to make this regular season game happen. So uh, hat tip to the Jaguars for that. Uh, and they've developed a little bit of a fan base in London, it seems, since they're there every single year. But yeah, they're nice enough to, you know, let the Texans come over to London and get a win and not even have to make a road game to Jacksonville. Yeah, I'm fine with uh, Tony Baselli showing a little bit of love to uh, the team he actually played for. Huge that the Texans picked up a W because they got the bye week. Maybe they get yep. some guys back, Ben, but we got the biggest stretch of their season coming up right now in the next three games after the bye because you got the Ravens and the Colts and you get about five days for that because that's a Thursday yep. game with the Colts. And then you have the Patriots, which is practically a guaranteed loss. So you better come out and take care of business against the Ravens and the Colts. The Colts game is especially huge because you can't lose that and lose the tiebreaker against the Colts and put them one step closer to the AFC South. Right, especially because, and of course, we'll see what happens. Colts and Pittsburgh today. Pittsburgh's a little more lively than the record might suggest that they are. So hopefully the Texans get some help today because... You know, the Colts are five and two, and we all recognize that it's a little bit fluky. You know, the point differential is barely above zero. And, you know, they shouldn't have beaten Denver last week. However, if you look at the Colts schedule moving forward, other than that Texans game, there's really not that many where you point to and say, OK, this should be a loss. You know, it's fairly soft. And, you know, in this NFL, you've almost got to win your division to really be able to expect that you have a chance in the playoffs to make a run if you're asking your team and of course and there's no guarantee even if the Colts do win the AFC South the Texans will get a wild card because you know the AFC there's so many uh, haves and have nots you know it might take 10 plus wins to uh to get in with one of those wild card spots right now the way that you know you're starting to see this sharp drop off so uh there's no guarantees that you get in at all but then even if you do uh having to win three straight road playoff games to get to the Super Bowl I mean that's just not realistic I mean you know, your ideal scenario, if you're the Texans, of course, is to make a run and only win the division, but make a run at a two seed and get the bye. But realistically, I mean, you know, goal one is win the division. And even if you don't get the two seed, you know, get back to the same spot you were at last year and hopefully have a better result in terms of hosting a game uh, wild card weekend. And the Colts at five and two, look, I know they've been a little lucky. They're probably not as good as that record. That winning percentage suggests but they don't really have that many automatic losses on their schedule. And. You know, when you factor it, as you said, the Patriots game is probably a loss. You know, if you go, I mean, that Colts game is almost a must win because, you know, you're already a game back as we're recording this in the loss column. If you lose that game, you know, that'd be basically a two game uh, split with them. Plus, they get the tiebreaker in that scenario. I mean, I just don't see, even though I don't think the Colts are all that great, barring major injuries. And, you know, they are without T.Y. Hilton for three weeks, it seems like. But, um yeah, the bottom line is they don't have that many games on their schedule. You can point to and say, wow, the Colts are probably going to lose this game. So because of it, 
The Texans don't have a big margin for error, even though they're six and three. The schedule is going to get pretty tough. So, yeah, ideally you would both the Ravens and Colts game. I recognize the Ravens game on the road is going to be pretty difficult. But, uh, yeah, at a bare minimum, you have got to get that Colts game because when you consider the schedule for the Texans at Baltimore and then New England anywhere, if you lose again to the Colts, basically give them a two game advantage plus the tiebreaker based on head to head. It just becomes pretty difficult to see what your route is to winning the division if you uh, let that one slip away. Yeah, Colts get a bye week after this week because they face the Dolphins, so that's not going to help either. And then yep. uh, I, I did want to ask you about the Rockets. Just give me a, your quick thoughts because um, they do understand that Jeff Bedzelik, uh they're going to have to thumb wrestle New Orleans <laughs> if they want to get him back. You know, if they want to correct this defense, they, they, they don't they don't get to just grab him off the waiver wire like they did last year. Yeah, and, but. You know, I'll say I'm not as worried about the defense as a lot of folks. You know, I think some of this stuff, I mean, they've been pretty unlucky with regards to the amount of even covered three pointers that have gone in from other teams. There's a lot of data suggesting that they need to get better, certainly. But I'm not too, too worried about it because, you know, their recipe for a championship is going to be just having the defense good enough. If they win a title or even get close in terms of contending, it's going to be because of their offense, you know, the things that I'm worried about, you know, the two guys that I'm watching most closely are Eric Gordon and Clint Capella. Eric Gordon hasn't just been bad to this point. Statistically, the first five games, he's been one of the worst players in the sport. I mean, he has been dreadful. They've got to get that fixed. So in terms of their offense, missing a lot of their threes, uh, he's got to get better. Certainly Harden shooting his 20% from three. That's a problem that we all trust that Harden's going to be able to turn it around. Uh, the, the main guys, like I said, Gordon, I think he'll be fine. He started slow last year as well and turned it around, but, you know, he's 30 years old. He got the big contract extension. So until he does it, it's fine to have a watchful eye. And then the other thing, you know, Clint Capella, I don't know what it is. He played just 20 minutes the other night in Brooklyn. It feels like uh, Mike D'Antoni's lost a little bit of faith in him. And, you know, the strangest thing, it just feels like he almost peaked with that 2018 playoff run, you know, when he played so well against uh, Carl Anthony Towns and Gobert. And then, you know, the Warrior Series in the Western Conference Finals, I won't say he was great, but he was pretty good. I mean, especially the home games, game five, game seven, you look back. And then, of course, this past year, you know, the playoffs, he was dreadful. I know he had the virus, but to start off this year, really, he just, and maybe he's a little too bulky. I don't know what it is, but he hasn't quite been the same guy, you know, even though the numbers went up last year because he played more minutes, he hasn't been as dominant as he was a couple of years ago. And as far as fixing their defense, look, if they don't trust Clint Capella, there's not a whole lot else that they can do, Robert, because they're just too damn small. You know, it's not like you can play Tyson Chandler, your backup, who's in year 19 and 37 years old. It's not like you can play him extended minutes. That's not really going to work out. And then if you're playing these lineups where you have, you know, a PJ Tucker or Tabo Sepalosha, someone like that at the five, then even if you do play good defense, you're not going to be able to secure the rebound. And if another team gets two or three possessions, then even if, you know, your perimeter defense is more sound, even if they do clean that up, you're just too small. So, you know, they've got to get Clint Capella more assertive to start the year. It, it feels like almost a confidence issue. He's not going up as authoritatively as he has in the past. And you can tell that Mike D'Antoni has a pretty quick hook on him. There's been several games, but she hasn't even played uh, 25 minutes. And, you know, he's just... You know, he is the one guy in their front court, Robert, that isn't either undersized or old, or in some cases, both. So in terms of their defense, I mean, it doesn't matter how well you do in the perimeter. If you're that small and you're running, you know, a six foot five PJ Tucker at the five and a six foot six Daniel House Jr. at the four, there's only so much you can do. So in terms of the defense, you know, number one, I mean, Gordon has to get better. Gordon's been bad offensively. He's been bad defensively as well. But number two, the size issue, either Capella needs to figure it out or at some point during the year, Gerald Morey is going to have to make a trade, something to bring in more size because what you get into with a lot of this, you know, even when they are trying, they're just too damn small. And the only guy that they have on the roster that can consistently give them the size they need is Clint Capella. And if he hasn't figured it out, then yeah, you're going to have to go externally, you know, try and find some help because the bottom line is, these closing lineups that they've been doing to start the year with PJ Tucker at the five, they're just entirely too small. And even if you do clean up the miscues in terms of, you know, technique, perimeter defense, closeouts, that kind of stuff, there's only so much you can do when you're not getting rebounds and you're too damn small. Yeah. I, I sometimes feel like D'Antoni though, just gives up on guys a little bit quickly. Yeah. Capella. I mean, for whatever you say about him offensively, he still can get rebounds and defense is rebounding too. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is a part of it. Of course, 
Westbrook's helped at some, but at the end of the day, you know, he's six foot three. I mean, uh, lots of these rebounds you're talking about, especially the ones right at the rim. It's a combination. Certainly Capella needs to play better, but also Mike D'Antoni. And, you know, there are some people on Rockets Twitter talking about this angle on Friday night. I think there's some truth in this. Is there a point of diminishing returns with regards to, you know, Mike D'Antoni's tendencies to go small, the three-point shooting, because so many other teams now are adopting these same principles, but they happen to be, you know, a little bit longer and or a bit younger than the Rockets are. So you don't really get the advantage that you did maybe, you know, three, four, five plus years ago when not as many other teams around the league were doing the same things. You know, Bullard used to call it the Rockets math advantage, that type of thing. And so, you know, now that you have these teams that are younger, maybe they're more athletic, maybe they're longer, and they're adopting many of these same principles, then what the Rockets get in terms of their floor spacing from uh, going small, you're not getting the same margin advantage on the offensive end of the floor. And then defensively, the reality is that, you know, you're too small. So, I mean, it may be on Mike Antoni to adjust back and, you know, some of it, you know, with Clint Capella, you know, part of it's a confidence issue. I agree. I, you know, that's what I was saying a few minutes ago. And, you know, if you're giving him such a quick hook on a consistent basis, then that's not really giving him the opportunity to sort of, you know, work his way out of whatever funk he may or may not be in mentally at the moment. So I agree. It's a combination. Clint needs to play better, but you know, the coaching staff and the management of the team, they also need to give him the best opportunity to play his way out of whatever struggles are going on. And it's tough to do that if you're just playing 20 minutes a game and you're on the bench for the vast majority of the fourth quarters. I want to ask you one thing about the Astros because, you know, the Garrett Cole thing, I, I know everybody was very angry about A.J. Hinch and we could all agree that I don't know what A.J. was doing. Hopefully he slept as badly as, as the rest of us did after <laughs> making that decision. Yeah. And the thing that um, I, I was surprised at is we did the postgame, Ben, before I heard from Hinch and I thought Hinch was going to have some good reasoning for the Garrett Cole decision and, you know, the Zach Granke decision, but, you know, saying that, you know, Granke, you know, had, had, had already pitched more pitches than he had in a long time. Well, the previous game he pitched more pitches than he did in the, in the world series game. And he was, he had just like given up a home run to Rendon and a walk to Soto, which were the only two guys in that lineup that were killing you. So once you get past that, it's like, well, why not leave Granke in? Cause he, he basically had Howie Kendrick befuddled. And so you could say that, but if yeah. you're going to bring somebody in, okay, you bring in Will Harris, who's done it all year. And I get that. And, that, and that's been Will Harris's job. And he, and he had one bad pitch in the entire postseason. Otherwise he'd given up nine uh, innings of scoreless baseball. The one bad pitch that he had was, you know, after a 20 minute delay by uh, the incredible major league baseball umpiring crew. But the thing that really drove me nuts about the whole Garrett Cole situation was, you know, he said he, he, he's like, well, I told I told him we weren't going to bring him in unless the Astros were ahead or it was to close out the game. And I just I'm like, well, why? What are you saving him for? Yeah, it just like I don't understand. Like I, I usually AJ Hinch is so well thought out. Yeah. then, And it just didn't make any. It was like somebody had, you know, wiped away the, the you know, somebody had put a magnet over his floppy disk or something like that. And what, what happened to AJ? Yeah. And, yeah. And it should be noted on Friday, they moved the goalpost a little bit more with that. And that, it, you know, Hinge said it was discussed before the game with Cole. And by that, you know, AJ saying that uh, Garrett had input on it, but I question how much, because, you know, we've seen guys in the past in tie games or, you know, even, uh, trailing by a run or two, come in out of the pen and be used basically to keep the game in striking distance. And, you know, in the ninth inning, you're down 4-2. You know, if you can keep that game at four, you've got the top of the lineup coming to the plate in the bottom, and the Nationals do not have an elite reliever. So I question, you know, if Cole was willing to pitch, you know, with the lead, so to speak, why would they not be able, you know, why? It's freaking game seven of the World Series. So, even though I know they're saying that, well, you know, it had kind of been talked about between Hinch and Cole. I question how much Cole really laid out those terms because to me, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm, I'm right there with you. And the bottom line, you know, Harris, I understand. There's a segment of fans that are going to say, you know, that pitch and it was low and away on the outside corner, so it wasn't like he just left a meatball over, you know, hanging in the middle of the plate. 
with that said, even if it's, you know, the right location, maybe they saw it coming because they've been exposed to him so much. That was his fourth appearance of the series. Maybe the break was a little bit flatter because he's been used so much. You know, on Monday, the off day between game five and game six, uh, Hedge mentioned that nobody needed the off day more than Will Harris because of how much they've used him. Then they used him Tuesday and then they put him out there, you know, Wednesday in game seven. So even though I know it was a tough pitch, at least based on the location, I'm not willing to just basically give a blank check to the decision in terms of just, you know, overlooking it because of where the pitch was located. The bottom line for me, Robert, I don't know if it would have turned out differently, but I just have a tough time swallowing that basically your best chance, you know, everything you've worked for all year, the highest leverage at bats were basically handled by Will Harris, Joe Smith, and Jose Urquidy. You know, even if you could have stuck with Granky, I mean, knowing the parameters that we know now, allegedly, you know, I still think I would have gone to Cole before the seven, you know, if the terms were really that limited, then quite frankly, I would have just bit the bullet and said, hey, you know, it's late enough in the game. You're nine outs away. Let's put Cole in there. And, you know, if you lose, yeah, you can second guess. But, you, you know, you lost because you threw the most dominant pitcher in baseball. Or you could have left, you know, you could have stuck with Grinky. You know, if you're going to you know, pick a lane, if you're going to give Grinky the benefit of the doubt, you know, the third time through the lineup, two, three and four, that's really dangerous. You know, if you're going to go against kind of convention and assume that Grinky's got the hot hand, OK, then stay with him. Or there's option number three which is, you know, since you've got Cole potentially available with a lead and apparently the eighth inning or later is what they targeted, then use Osuna rather than uh, Will Harris as the fireman because, you know, you're going up against the heart of their order. Well, you, the other thing is with Osuna is you you had Granky pitching who's throwing softballs and you bring in Will Harris who's not really, you know, a gas guy and you bring yeah. in Osuna who's got gas because, look, Howie Kendrick, he hits the ball – on the outer half of the, that's a that's a ball that he would have he would hit foul if Osuna's throwing 100 miles an hour on that on that edge. Yeah, the, the bottom line to me is all the negative PR that you've gotten for 14 months about Roberto Osuna. Everything his organization has put itself through in terms of the national reaction, uh, segments of the fan base, that type of thing. It's because you think he has truly elite stuff. He's good enough that you know basically he's worth the consequences. Well, here's the deal. In this situation, you know, you traded all those prospects to for Zach Grinky, who you're paying $25 million a year to. Garrett Cole, that was probably the last game he'll ever play in the Astros uniform, the most dominant pitcher in baseball. And then there's Osuna, who, you know, say what you will in terms of fan perception of him, but you certainly gave up a lot in terms of, you know, what you were willing to do to get him here. If you lost the game because of any of those three guys, because, you know, Granky, Cole, Osuna, any combination of those three weren't good enough, then it would suck, but I could live with it. What I can't deal with is basically, and why I'm so frustrated with AJ, you know, you want to feel like that even if you lost, you know, you burned your best bullets. You did everything that you could do. And it feels like, you know, game seven of the World Series, you had a lead, and the at-bats that really, really sunk you were... Will Harris, Joe Smith, and Jose Arquiti. And that's just so frustrating. And I mean, even you if know, you, even the run, even look, Ben, it, even if you go, okay, Will Harris comes in, he gives up the two runs. Okay. You're, you're now down a run. If you bring out Garrett Cole and you just say, we're going to keep it within a run that just walking him out of the bullpen ignites the crowd and yeah, ignites sure. your players. And there was, Absolutely. the word was out of the Astros, you know, the inside word was that not only was Garrett Cole pissed off that he didn't get, the whole team was pissed off that Garrett yeah. Cole. And, and the other thing, you know, we're talking about this, you know, there's so many different ways, you know, you could have stuck with Granky, you could have gone with Cole in the seventh, you could have gone with Osuna, you, you know, there wasn't a clear answer, but I'm just saying all of them I'd prefer to the way it played out, which basically feels like your season was decided by Will Harris, Joe Smith and Jose Urquidy, who by and large, you know, nice relievers, but you know, this team is too good to be leaving them in the highest leverage of bats. And then the worst decision of all, the one run that uh, that Osuna gave up in the eighth, I have no earthly idea, Robert, a runner on second with two outs, why you wouldn't intentionally walk Juan Soto. Because the difference between one oh, and yeah. two runs we, we discussed at that, that point <laughs> in the game, yeah. I mean, that is massive. A 3-2 versus 4-2. That was when it got to 4-2. 
that was the first time it felt like, you know, and I wasn't there watching on TV, but it felt like that was a huge, you know, punch in the gut for the crowd. When it was three to two, you know, my read, I, I really believe that they would score another run. And I still think they might have, you know, had it not escalated, you know, to four to two and then to six yeah. to two. Because at some point there's can, kind of a. Can you say Phil Garner pitching to Albert Pujols? Can we just say that? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And so that one, I don't even, I, you know, I have a tough time even blaming Osuna for that one because you had first base wide open with two outs. That's just a terrible decision. And that's the worst of all. But yeah, the bottom line for me, you know, there's not one clear thing. Knowing what I know now, I think I would have just said, hey, as great as Grinky is, you know, we're lucky to get through six scoreless after he didn't even make it through five. In any of the others, I think I would have said, hey, you got it to the seventh with a multi-run lead. And this is the heart of the order for the third time, which there's a lot of data showing that third time through the order. There's a big negative effect uh, on the pitcher. I think knowing what I know now about the parameters, I think I would have just gone Cole at the seventh and lived with the result. Yes, I understand he's on two days rest. I understand that, you know, he hasn't pitched on the bullpen before. Number one, a lot of guys, you know, have look at, you know, Madison Bumgarner closing out World Series. You know, it has been done before. But the bottom line, if it goes wrong. I can live with it by saying, hey, you know, this has been the most dominant pitcher uh, in baseball this year. I would argue that it was the most dominant season of any Astros pitcher all time. Talking about Garrett Cole, I could do that. If you wanted to argue Zach Grinke was that damn brilliant, which he was, then, you know, stick with him. If you want to say Osuna, this is why, you know, we took the huge PR hit, had done everything over the past 14 months because he's got, you know, this upper 90s fastball and has been one of the best closers in the game. All of that, you know, I could accept any of those three rationales. It's losing the game, game seven of the World Series at home, in which the highest leverage at bats were handled by Will Harris, uh, the swing at bats, Will Harris, Joe Smith, Jose Urquidy, and then the decision uh, with Osuna to pitch to uh, Juan Soto in the eighth. That's what's so difficult because it it just doesn't feel like to me that the Astros went down with – with their best guys. And that's what makes it such a tough pill to swallow. And Ben, I I love that Garrett Cole had the great words to the fans the day after, but I just thought, you know, with all the class stuff and all the way, the ways that Garrett Cole handled himself extremely well as an Astro after the game, putting on the Boris cap and, and what he said to Hunter or what he's, what Hunter Atkins reported that he said. And I mean, I just, that, that was disappointing from, from somebody like Garrett Cole. I mean, it's disappointing, but what, I wish people would consider, I mean, it is disappointing, but keep in mind, I mean, as much as we wanted to win, I mean, for those players, that was a punch in the gut and it's not even an hour old. There's a lot of emotions going on there. So yeah, I mean, I I see it both ways. I mean, I agree he should have handled it better, but I also think, I mean, I understand his frustration at, at AJ Hinch. I'm, you know, if there's frustration at Jeff Luno, I understand. I doubt seriously that Scott Boris would have ever tried to, uh, allowed for an extension or tried to sign him before right. the end of the season. So let's just take that off the table. If he's mad at Jeff Luno, cause he hasn't done anything with the, I, you know, that's a, you know, that's not in Scott Boris's DNA, but what I, I, I guess my frustration was, this isn't about me. It's about, or you, this is about the fact that Garrett Cole puts on a, a Boris sure. cap instead of an Astros cap in a locker room filled with, you know, his teammates that have fought with them all year. And as soon as you lose game seven and you didn't get to go into the game, that you go, I'm going to put on a Boris cap and not an Astros yeah. cap. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I'm just saying, I mean, that one is as, and of course for him personally, given that his lack of use is at the heart of this, I get that it's disappointing. I just have a tough time kind of reading him the riot act about it, saying that this was handled poorly because, it, you know, I don't know, quite frankly, if, if I would have handled it that much better in the situation. I would like to think that I would, but, you know, there's a lot of emotion this right after, so... I would say I'm disappointed by it more than angry. You know, I wish that it had ended on a better note, certainly winning the game, but also, you know, after everything that Cole's done, his first, uh, probably his only two years in Houston, you know, I wish it had been a better ending for everyone involved and not this bitter pill and this huge what if that, you know, especially if the Astros don't win another World Series, we'll be talking about this for a long, long time. Uh, I wish it didn't end that way, but. You know, I would just say for me, I get where you're coming from. I'm just more disappointed by it than angry because I have a tough time getting angry because, you know, as disappointing as it is, the fans deserve better. His teammates deserve better. You're right. But at the same time, this is just a really, really tough situation. And we're talking literally less than an hour after the game goes final in the clubhouse. So 
I, you know, like I said, I, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and I wish it was handled better. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I kind of understand where he's coming from too. Last thing I want to do, Ben, is just uh, say what Colin McHugh said on social media, a few words for Astros fans in case this year was his last. He said, quote, in April 2014, we made our way to this special city and it changed our lives forever. He's talking about him and his wife. He went on to say how his two sons were born here, how his father, who was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2014, battled the disease at MD Anderson Hospital. He said that his years in Houston were the best of his life. And quote, Houston may get a bad rep for those who don't know her well, but a city this diverse, this beautiful, has my heart and won't let it go. We have no idea what the future holds and if we will ever be back here to live. But if our time here is at an end, I want to thank you. Thank you for accepting us and know that it's been an honor to represent you to the world for these last six years. Go Astros, exclamation point. Ben, Colin McHugh, just class all the way, and we can't thank him enough if this is the last we see of him. Yep. Uh, class act, he talked about, uh, McCullers did in the replies, something that Colin did for him his first year in Houston, kind of taking him under their wing, talking about Colin and his wife, inviting them over for dinner. And, you know, McHugh's a great guy. He'll be missed, assuming he moves on. You know, the Astros typically, with their relievers, and especially with all the contracts they have to hand out with guys like, you know, George Springer's, his deal runs out after 2020. You know, you in terms of good but not great relievers, stuff like Colin McHugh, you know, that's something they're going to try and fill internally rather than pay the going rate for, you know, whatever slightly above average guy that's in his low 30s. But, but the bigger takeaway, I mean, that is a wonderful clubhouse. Certainly, you know, McHugh, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, you can go on and on down the line. There are some fantastic human beings in there. And that's why, you know, I thought some of the national response in the aftermath of that whole, you know, Brandon Taubman incident was so over the top. I understand how the PR statement was mishandled. I understand, you know, how poorly he acted and he deservedly uh, lost his job. All of that stuff is true. But to then paint the Astros the way some did for the sake of a narrative, as if, you know, they're representative of everything that's wrong in the sport. No, that clubhouse has, and not just some, I'd say the vast majority, some incredible human beings in there. I mean, it represents a great city. They're appreciative, their relationship with the fan base. That's why to me, and, you know, I mentioned it this morning on Twitter when, you know, I just noticed in passing that, you know, the Yankees signed Araldis Chapman to an extension last night. And you had seen basically nothing nationally in terms of the outrage, you know, some of the columns we saw a week ago blasting the organization, one going as far to say that the Astros should be ashamed of themselves. Look, I'm not saying that everything was handled perfectly. It wasn't. What I'm saying is that, you know, you shouldn't miss uh, the forest for the trees. There's a lot of great people in that clubhouse, uh, just some really class acts. It sucks they didn't get, you know, a second ring. But that's where, to me, it's such a shame that a lot of the World Series was defined by this, you know, controversy off the field because the players in that clubhouse, the guys and, you know, AJ as well, I disagree with him in terms of game seven, but AJ is a fantastic human being, a great leader. That's why it's so silly. Some of the storylines that have been going about with this team, because I mean, those are just some incredible men. I think the world of those guys, Collins at the top of the list, certainly Altuve as well. Glad he got his walk-off moment uh, to clinch the pennant against the Yankees. And that's why, you know, to me, it's such a shame. And, and in reality, you know, as I said on Twitter, when you're allowing your response and you're kind of picking and choosing based on your biases, you know, when to to go in on guys like, in the course with the Astros at the Osuna acquisition, you're actually trivializing the real issue. If you're going that heavily on a team because for whatever reason, you know, I guess you're cheering for the opponent, whatever it may be. Again, I'm not saying that the Astros deserve no criticism. I'm not saying they're perfect, but you know, by and large, this is a clubhouse, a group of guys that stands for the right things. And in a series where, unfortunately, they were painted by many to be kind of the villain, the enemy. I think, you know, seeing those words from Colin McHugh and, of course, the perspective of a lot of those guys in the clubhouse in the days since the World Series. Hopefully it's a reminder going into 2020 to, hey, you know, let's all turn the page. You know, the stuff with Tobman, that's an outlier. It's a, it's a great clubhouse. And as much as this stings, it's a great group of guys. And I look forward to uh, cheering them on again in 2020. Yeah, I'd forget, 
you know, the Twitter narrative, because that's to me, that's like 2% of the people. I mean, I talk to sure. my friends nationally. I've got people around the country that are huge baseball fans. And I think, you know, the Astros team, it, it's generally well-liked. Uh, they, they look at the management separate from the players, I think. And I think the other part about it is everybody likes the Astros because they beat the Yankees all the time. And how sure. could you not like <laughs> the Astros? So, uh, Ben, it's uh, at Ben Dubose on Twitter. It's USA Today Rockets Wire. Anything else you want to plug? You got a story coming out on uh, Mike D'Antoni's new glasses that he's wearing on the sideline or anything good, good like that? <laughs> Not yet, but uh, I might when they get back to Houston. You know, it's been a long road trip, uh, four gamer, but yeah, they're back in Houston Wednesday against the Warriors. So hopefully get some uh, good, good content once I can see the uh, frames up close and personal. Well, thanks, Ben. And also a huge thanks to Salvador Rodriguez, who donated a little money to help us with podcast expenses. If you're enjoying what we do and you'd like to help out, go to our website, HoustonSportsTalk.net. Look for the donate button on the home page. Your final score, the Texans move to six and three. They win 26 to three dominating performance in jolly old England. We'll talk to you again soon. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Attack!